How about we start off <clears throat> our time together here by slipping through a time warp? Won't go back very far. I just want us to go back to October 20th, 1968, Mexico City. The Summer Olympics were being held then. Because of the altitude and the intense heat of the summer, they had to wait till the autumn months to gather the world-class athletes. On this particular day, it was the men's marathon, among other events. And they sent these incredible athletes off to run this 26.2-mile race. And, of course, these are the swiftest feet and legs in the world, and they were all in a very tight configuration, and their legs are flying in a rhythm, and one man got tripped. He fell, and he did enormous damage to his knee and whacked his head. His name was John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania. Well, the other runners continued to go, and they made their way to the stadium and ultimately, you know, did it in, in, in the time frame you typically would, a little over two hours, but... John Stephen Corey was so injured, uh, it would have been best just to stop. But he got up, and he started hobbling his way and kept working his way towards the stadium. They gave out the medals. In fact, they were about to bring an end to, the, to the, uh, all the activities that day when the announcer came on and said, we still have a marathoner making his way to the stadium. Everybody stay put until he's in. Now, this is, this is long after the, the guys had finished. And people were just horrified to see John Stephen Aquari from Tanzania come hobbling his way into the stadium. And he's got blood on him and he did all messed up and, and he had to hobble his way around. But they started cheering. I mean, it was just a, a, the roaring applause. And, and in fact, it, it caused him to pick up his gait and he actually was able to run that last lap with his injury and he fell across the finish line. They whisked him off to, the, to get medical attention, but the press wanted, a, wanted an interview. And if I was one of the press, I would ask the same question they did. The only obvious question is, why? After falling and injuring yourself, when there's no way you could have any kind of a, of a competitive finish, why did you continue? They asked him that question. Here's what he said. He said, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish one. I like this guy. In fact, a lot of people said, what, what, what a heart. What an attitude. In fact, if you talk with people that are, you know, kind of keep up with that, that level of, of athlete and Olympic stuff, and you bring up that, 19, uh, that, that 1968 Olympics and, and the marathon... Nobody can remember who came in first, but everybody remembers who came in last. Because there's a huge difference between people who do great things and people who live great lives. Now, I want to talk about that because, because John Stephen Corey obviously displayed an incredible attitude in the midst of his setbacks and injuries, but his attitude was a product of his perspective. That his perspective was framing it all. And as Christians, we have a perspective that ultimately impacts our attitudes. And our perspective is contingent upon whether or not we have a clear understanding of where we stand with God as a result of his son's sacrifice and resurrection. 
We can't presume that just because we've placed our faith in him, we figured out that we were lost and he could find us, that, that, that we were blind and he could give us sight, that he could set us free from our sins and give us eternal life. It's, it, it, just because that happened, we cannot presume that we still have a clear understanding of how he views us and how we should view him. With that in mind, I'd like to uh, take you to a familiar piece of scripture, John chapter 6. And you can see this, this, these two options of, of, of how, uh, how perspective can frame the way people can respond in things. This is the famous story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. I'll start at verse 1. I'm reading from the NIV. I think they might be putting up the, uh, uh, the English Standard Version, but you'll be able to follow along with that. Uh, it goes something like, sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. Now, when Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now, let's hit the pause button a second. Make sure we understand what Jesus is doing and what he's not doing. He's not trying to show Philip up. He's not trying to make him look foolish. That's not at all. He knows something that Philip doesn't know. Actually, he knows a lot of things that Philip doesn't know. But there's one thing in particular, and that is that he was leaving soon. said the Passover feast was near. So he was going to be making a beeline to Jerusalem, and he knew he was going to be on a cross and pay for the sins of the world. He's going to do what he came here to do and ultimately rise from the dead and then spend a little time with them, giving them marching orders, and then head on back to his Father in heaven and ascend to heaven. And he knew that he was going to give them marching orders to go and, and basically spread the gospel and basically establish this whole new Christian religion all over the world. And he knew that they were going to be starting with absolutely no money in the bank, no theological books, no completed scriptures, and uh, no real estate, nothing. And, and he wanted him to say, when I tell you to do something, and there's no way for you to figure out from a human point of view to do it, just do it. Just trust me. So he, he used this as a great dilemma to, to show them something. Well, Philip came back, and he looked at it through human eyes like any of us would, and did the math. He said, Lord, come on, eight months' wages would not buy enough for each one to have a bite. Now, here comes Andrew, uh, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And by the way, every time you meet Andrew in the Bible, he's always introducing somebody to Jesus. So he basically, he, he tells him about this kid he just met. He said, well, uh, he says, here's a small boy. Here's a boy here with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So here's this little kid. His mother had the forethought to send him off to see Jesus and tucked a little Happy Meal in his uh, pouch for him. And Andrew not only met this kid, he, he knew what was in there. He knew the portions and, 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 uh, and, 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 and the, all that stuff. So he, he said, he, he brought it there, but how far will that go? Jesus said, okay, have all the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them, and Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those, look at this, who were seated as much as they wanted. Look at the generosity there. 
You're a big fella. You have a big appetite. Take, take more if you need. You're going to, you, if you want to take, pack some in for your trip home, take, take as much as you want. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. Notice the, he's, he's not into uh, uh, wasting stuff. He's into generosity and stewardship. He had it all balanced out there. And they gathered 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And how many disciples were there again? There were 12. And so Jesus was trying to show them, when I, when I call you to do something that is just, you guys can't figure out how you could possibly do it. Just trust me, follow me, do it, and I know you have an appetite too. I know you have a family. I'll take care of you too. All right, so this is done now. Jesus is a good teacher because good teachers follow a good lecture with a test. And so he wanted to see if these guys were paying attention. So he said, look, I'm going to send a crowd on their way. You guys head across the Sea of Galilee, and, and, and I'll meet you on the other side. So they obeyed him. They were obedient people. They, they obeyed him when he said, you know, distribute this, gather it up. They, they were obedient all the way. So they got in the boats, and they go across there. And then he starts praying for them. And it's okay, Father, it's time for their big test. And so the Father dropped a tsunami down on him. I mean, he just dropped this horrific storm on him. And what would be, normally be a, a, a brief row across the lake. They're out there in the middle fighting for their lives. The waves are so high, the winds, and it's so pitch dark, and they're, they're scared to death. And they, they wonder if they're, they're going to die. Now, just thinking that thought, you understand, they get an F on the top of their, their quiz. Boom, you just flunked. Well, Jesus said he'd meet him on the other side. It's a long walk. If you know the map, all the way up over the top, just cutting across the lake is a lot easier. So he's walking across the lake, maybe jogging a little bit, comes by the boat, and this guy, the lightning flight, and, and they see him, and they, uh, they're frightened to death. They think it's a ghost, and they realize it's him, and Peter wants to come out to him, and, and he's doing fine until he takes his eyes off him, looks at the circumstance around him, down he goes. Finally, they invite him in the boat, and then it says in Mark, immediately they were at the other side. Right where he said he'd meet them. So here were obedient people who missed the bigger story going on in the midst of it and didn't get to be part of the bigger thing that God was doing. Because they were thinking they were going to die. And, and, and you know, he said, you can't die. I said, where did I say I'd meet you? On the other side. You can't die. You could not possibly drown even if the boat sunk. Because I said I'd meet you there. And, and see, it's so easy, even though we've put our faith in Christ, to allow ourselves to fall into a mindset of thinking that ultimately undermines the great work God wanted to do on us, with us, for us, and through us. These, this, this mindset, I think, really falls into interesting categories where you see uh, the disciples thinking more in a scarce way and Jesus trying to get them to see more the abundant way of thinking. And with that in mind, I'd like to... Uh, 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 he, these guys were obedient, but he was bringing his grace to the, to the, in, into play for them to show them there was something bigger they were missing. And so what I'd like to do first off in our time together is I'd like to, uh, I'd like to make a list here. And I want to look at two types of of lives that we can live as Christians. And they both sound good. But watch how this works. For, there are some Christians that I would say they're basically committed to living an obedient-based life. 
Now, that sounds like a great idea because we want to be obedient, right? And then there's others. They're, they're more coming at this angle. Their, their preoccupation is a grace-based life, a grace-filled life. This one assumes the power and presence of Jesus, not just saving them, but living out each day, each moment. Now, watch this. I'm going to just kind of run, rattle through a list here. The obedience-based life, their primary thing they're living for, they're living to please God. They live to please God. Now, that sounds, once again, well, there's verses in the Bible that says such and such, you know, like, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And such, if you do this thing, it gives God great pleasure. I'm not talking about that kind of pleasing. When, when, when you're doing something to give somebody pleasure, that's for their benefit. But what I'm talking about is when you're pleasing, you're trying to please somebody because you want to get something more from them or you don't want to lose something from them. See, so the obedient-based life Christianity starts, and they live to please God because they think, you know, I don't want anything to happen that will pull, pull back his love from me or, or pull back his, 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 his presence from me. And if I do this, he might give me more of his power and presence. And you see, you understand, at that point, that is absolutely theologically bankrupt thinking. Because there's nothing you could do that could get more of God from him because you already have all of him. You got it? You already have it all. There's nothing you could do that could lose anything from God because he is not giving it to you based on how you behave. He's given it to you based on what Christ did on the cross, the finished work of Christ, and how much he loves you. He loves us. In Psalms, it says, God is not dealing with us according to our sin. If he we, if we were, we'd all be dead. You with me on this? Okay. So they live, this kind of pleasing is the stuff that, like a kid does to try and... Uh, uh, um, get favor, extra favor from their parents for something when they really, it's all about them. So this is all about this person, obedience. Over here, the grace-based person, they live, they live to trust God. They just trust him. Even though it doesn't make sense from a human point of view. Now let's, let me rattle through them pretty fast here. You see, this obedience-based life, it's more of a performance, Whereas this, uh, the grace-based life, it's a, it's a relationship. It's, it's a launch from a heart connection, which is not just a faith connection. The obedience-based life is seen as a duty, something I have to do. Whereas the grace-based life is a delight. It's something I get to do. This is very predictable, obedience-based life, very predictable. That's why we would prefer it, because it's kind of got that, that, that predictable left, right, left, right, cadence that legalism offers us. Whereas the grace-based life is much more fluid. It's more like a dance. And the music is changing all the time. You have no say over the music, and you're dancing with Jesus. He says, just pick up the rhythm with me, and I'm leading. (laughs) I lead. But that's easy to do if you started out from from the very beginning, saying, well, I trust you. Lead me wherever. And then look at this one. Uh, the the obedience-based life, it, pro- it promotes fear. And naturally, it would it'd be fear because you, you, your, your, your relationship with God is not based on confidence and certainty. Whereas the grace-based life promotes faith. And this one creates worry because you never know whether you're quite doing enough. Whereas this one creates calm because, you know, it's not based on what you do anyway. 
This one is very masked. It has to be. You don't want people too close because they'll see that you're not quite what you are trying to advertise you are. You, you got some fraud in you and you know it. You don't want them too close. Whereas this one, the grace, it's just transparent. Who's kidding who? And you don't hide the fact. Man, talking about a train wreck, I could take that to new levels. It's unbelievable that Christ would even give me the time of day, let alone give me his life. And, and, and so, so you're not, you don't feel like you have to impress somebody with some false narrative about what you aren't. This one... It, 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 it easily falls into a critical spirit because that's one of the ways by keeping score and pointing out the people that don't quite measure up, it makes us look better. Whereas this one, this one is very compassionate spirit. You see somebody that's struggling in your sin rather than be offended or upset or whatever, you just hurt for them. Yeah, you hurt for them and you desire, oh man, Lord, what, how, how can I be using their life for them to see you? This one creates a lot of guilt. Guilt, and rightfully so, because you never quite feel you're hitting it. Whereas this one, just sense of freedom. I'm just—it's amazing that the the the, the how, how at ease I get to be in, in in my fellowship with God because of this relationship is based on what He did for me. About it's based on who He is. This one inclines us towards pridefulness. Obviously, look at how well I'm doing. Aren't I something? God's got to be pretty pleased. He's got to be pretty excited about me. Whereas this one inclines itself to humility. <laughs> I just can't believe that they, you even get invited to the party. This one is an outside-in management. This is very man-made. You've got to understand, this is, this is where we're controlling all the variables. Where this is an inside-out surrender. This is, Lord, you're driving this one. This one over here, the obedience-based life, is more natural. That's why we would choose it, because we would prefer to be running our life, even in the spiritual realm. Whereas this is more supernatural, where you get out of the way, and probably it takes you, it, it can be frightening sometimes when you see what God's calling you into, but, but you say, but I trust you. Okay, over here, this is for church people. We want to be around more of our kind here, so we feel a little more comfortable and not as exposed. This is for everybody. Go down there to, uh, this one focuses on being good. This is about human uh, efforts to, to measure up. Whereas this one focuses on being connected to the heart of God. That's all I want to do. I just want Jesus center stage in my heart. And how I behave is going to be coming from him rather than under my control. But this one lends itself to self-righteousness. Who's kidding who? This lends itself to self-righteousness. But look what this one lends itself to. Organic obedience. In other words, you want to obey God, not because you want to get something more from him or afraid you're going to lose something from him. You want to obey him because you love him. You trust him. You think this is incredible. I get delight in, in, in doing your will, Lord, because you're a good God. You make sense. You care for my heart. And this one, I think, leads to scarcity thinking, just by nature. This one leads to abundant thinking. And so what I'd like to do is take and compare these two types of thinkers. 
Abundant thinkers and scarcity. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the abundant thinkers. There's the people that are, you know, the naturally born with a, the, the, the glasses half full mindset and the scarcity are those ones that's half empty. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about that at all. God hardwires us and some look at it as half full and they're the vision casters and some, he wires some to be half empty. They're the bean counters. We need them both. As long as both are submitted to God in his best and his desires, everything's fine. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where, where God, where, where this, this side, this, this scarcity mindset is so driven by the person and, and God's on the other side. So, so with that in mind, here's what I want to do. I want to just take like four categories. We're going to do this pretty fast. I'm just going to take four generic areas of perspective and we're going to, let's compare the two. Ready? First, for instance, on how they view life, how they view life in general. Well, scarcity thinkers, remember, they start with some presuppositions and perspective. And they basically start with the perspective that life is a finite pie, that everything is limited. They, that's because, and they have that mindset because they tend to be focused downwards on the moment and the context that they're in and inwards on themselves and how this is affecting them. And so because of that, they believe that resources are limited, ideas are limited, opportunities, even love. Now you understand what kind of damage this can do in a marriage, what it can do to our kids. And grandkids. And you can see what kind of damage this can do to a church body. Because you know, when scarcity thinkers by nature resistant and antagonistic to change. But if a church isn't in a constant state of change, they're, they're basically on a road to irrelevancy. That's the one thing that's constant in the world we're living in is change. And our job, you know, Paul said, I want to become all things to all men that I might by all means win some. And I love that way it translates out in English, win some, because we have the word winsome. And one of the ways you win some is be winsome, which is relevant, which is dialed into where people are and what it takes to reach them. Abundant thinkers, on the other hand, believe there's plenty for everyone. There's plenty for everyone because they're focused upwards towards God that automatically makes them sensitive outwards towards others. They, they, they understand this isn't about me. It's not about me. It's never about me. It's about God and how he wants to use me to touch others. And they believe... Ideas are infinite. Opportunities, resources, everything's unlimited. Uh, you know, we, we, my wife and I and our family lived out in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we go to a church there, Scottsdale Bible Church, and, and for, uh, for many years, a man lived there. He was a famous songwriter of the 20th century. He's since passed on. But his name was John W. Peterson. He was a famous Christian songwriter. Some, I'm, Kev, you know him. And you've probably done some of his works and, and, and cantatas and stuff. And uh, if you had hymnals here, you'd probably find his name in the back. And he was a left-handed golfer. I'm a left-handed golfer. Often we were in, in the same cart. And I, I had something that was, uh, I always thought about since I was a kid. And finally I thought he would know the answer. This said, John. Okay, there are eight notes in a musical scales 
plus the five sharps and flats, right? You say, yep, okay, now, man has been writing original music for what? Seven, 8,000 years, maybe 9,000 years? Shouldn't we be coming to the end <laughs> of the melodic options, the mathematical options on those, those, those eight notes and those sharps and flats? I mean, we gotta be running out. He said, Tim, the mathematical and melodic options of those eight notes plus their sharps and flats are infinite. He said, we could be writing, um, we can write original music for the next billion years. We haven't even scratched the surface. That's the kind of God we have. You know, God paints an original sunset every evening on your, on your horizon. Out in Arizona, they're spectacular because of our air pollution in the summer. It refracts it. It's just amazing. He never has painted to a light. Never. But how many primary colors does he have to choose from to do that? Do you know? How many primary colors are there? Come on. Three, right. There's three. There's only three primary colors. And yet, he's taken those three colors and painted a different one every night since he created the sun. He's never painted two zebras the same. He's never fingerprinted two people the same. Uh, there is no stopping what he can do. And so we need to wrap our hearts around this kind of magnificent, incredible God we have. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul was unpacking the incredible majesty of God's heart and love, and he just goes right into prayer. And in the middle of this prayer, he just is overwhelmed with it. And he just says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all, look at this, we ask or even imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. See, we have this overwhelming God, and any time we start to think through the limitations of our human frailty, and our selfish agenda, we lose. We miss out on something wonderful. Let's look at how they view what they have. How they view what they have. Scarcity thinkers have a very difficult time sharing. Well, if life's a finite pie, if it's fixed, I have a hard time sharing because if I, you get something, that means there's less for me. So what they do is they hoard. They hoard things like Recognition or credit for something that they, they, they hoard ideas. They might even hoard their time. They hoard profit. They hoard encouragement. They might even hoard love. They have a hard time giving credit to others. And then, you know, in the family, this can show itself like in the, 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 call the lawnmower parent, that it's so about themselves and their own kid, they'll mow down anybody and anything that gets in the way of what they want for their kid, regardless of whether their wants are even reasonable. But look what this can do in a church. Because listen, every church, unfortunately, has people in this category, and they become professional critics of God's servants. They, they make... They, make, they, they almost focus in on it in, in ways that it's, it's unbelievable. And it, it's like, you know, we sit in, our, sit in our biblical hot tubs at church but, and just soak it all in, but it, it had no impact on us. And, and I've even known them to be serial Bible study attenders. I mean, they're right there, and they, their Bibles are all marked up. But their heart 
isn't. The heart of God isn't coming out of it. They're like, I like to call them like biblical bulimics. They take it all in and then they purge it when it comes time to dealing with one another. How about abundant thinkers? Abundant thinkers hold all that they have in open hands. They share. They share resources and recognition and time and ideas and opportunities. They share encouragement. They share love. It's like the, the heart, the abundant heart of, of um, Jim Elliott when he went down there to try and take the gospel to those, those, uh, those uh, people who never heard it before in the end of the Amazon, and those, those natives killed him. And, and they, they found his body there, but they found his, his uh, diary. And in that famous quote, you've all heard it, where, where he said, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And then their wives came in, and you would think the wives would want nothing to do with these people. They killed our husband. They came in, and they presented the gospel and established the church. Because these are people that have this abundant heart of God. How about this? How do they view others? How do these two types of people view others? Scarcity thinkers have a difficult time being genuinely happy for the successes of other people. Even and especially members of their own family, close friends, and associates. They treat other people's blessings as though something were taken from them. And remember, if it's a finite pie, if you got more, I, that means there's less for me. It's that, it's that polluted mindset. Let's use an example. Okay, let's say, here's a scarcity thinker, and he lives in a little, you know, bedroom community, and his neighbor comes in, pulls into his driveway, but he's driving a brand new Land Rover. Brand new. And scarcity thinking, man, must have got a big raise or something. No, no, no. Same job, same parent. My grandmother, she's got some, you know, some money, and she figured she's not going to be around much longer, so she decided to give it out. She asked me what kind of car, I, if I could dream and have any car. I told, I've always liked the Land Rover. She bought this for me. It's all tricked out. Get this. Paid the taxes on it, too. Paid the licenses. Scarcity thinking, oh, man. He said, the, the, the guy said, you want to come over and see it? No, I'm busy. I, I got I to gotta rearrange my sock drawer. I, I got some agenda. I, he goes in this house, and he says, man, I can't believe it. She, he got a brand new Land Rover. His grandmother gave it to him. He didn't have to pay for it. They pass each other in traffic. The neighbor says, hey, buddy, how you doing? And the guy said, oh, man, I can't stand that car. I hate that car. By the way, there's a very thin line between hating the car and hating the person driving it. Very thin comes home, and he sees his neighbor looking at his side panel. What happened? Somebody nicked my door. Yes. <laughs> By the way, is this sick? Listen, every one of us, you folks over in the modern uh, uh, service, keep this in mind. Any one of us can slip into this mindset like that. And if you think you can't, you're absolutely deluding yourself. This is in all of us. Because we, we tend to be selfish people. We tend to be about us. And so the, the scarcity thinkers, they, they, just, they just snort lines of comparison every day. And they're overwhelmed with this drug of comparison. What's sad about this scarcity thinking is they miss the shared blessing. Because they refuse to share joy. If they can't be blessed, they don't want anyone else blessed. 
They see others as objects, obstacles, or challenges rather than fellow human beings. They tend to look out for their own best interests at the expense of others. And they bring havoc in the relationships of the people closest to them. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. It says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about God's grace a lot. But say, but, but Tim, what about, what about the truth? What about it? The obedience-based people are into the truth. I'm great. Good for them. But you see, John 1.14 says, Jesus was filled with grace and truth. And if he's in us, we should be filled with both too. In other words, the way we're supposed to be living our Christian life, we're supposed to be guided by God's truth, all the while tempered by his heart of grace. And when his heart of grace is in its rightful place, we're outwardly focused. It's not about us. And we're not worried so much because we trust him, no matter what's coming our way. How about abundant thinkers? How do they view others? Well, they love it when good things happen to the people they love. In fact, they love it when good things happen to anybody. Let's revisit our Land Rover story. Okay, here's an abundant thinker. Neighbor comes home. Why, you got a raise? No, no, no. Grandma bought it for me, paid for everything. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. You want to see it? Absolutely. But wait a minute. I got to get my phone. I'm going to take a picture. Want maybe my wife and I next to you. Can I post it on Facebook? This is incredible. And they pass each other in traffic. And the guy waves. Love that car. And you know, when you love the car, it's easy to love the driver comes home, sees them. What, what, what happened? Oh, somebody nicked my car. Oh, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've got some compound in here. I think, come on, I think we can rub that out. Do you get what's going on here? It's like the guy's grandmother gave the abundant thinker the car. <laughs> He's so enjoying what's happening. This guy's like, he gets to, it's like it's his too. That's what happens when God's heart of grace is in its rightful place. You can't stand, you can't seem to applaud other people's accomplishments and blessings enough. And in the process, partake of them yourself. And that's because grace causes us to recognize the intrinsic value of each individual around us and do everything we can to bring the best out of them. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, gives us is this clarity like nothing else. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not look into your own interests, but each to the interests of others. In, this rela- in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Then he goes on from there and tells us why. Because he says he's not asking us to do anything that Jesus didn't already do for us. He said, who? He goes on to say, have this mind in you as in Christ. Who? Although God. Did not consider all the privileges of God something he needed to hang on to, but was willing to empty himself of those privileges, not of his deity, but the privileges, and took upon the form of human flesh and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And so if he is in us, we should have a similar mindset coming out. One last thing. How do they view adversity? Scarcity thinkers take adversity personally. And they punish the people up close to them when they have to go through it. How do they do that? They whine. They complain. They nag. Someone has said nagging is like being nibbled to death by a duck. 
You know, you say, will you just grow teeth and finish me off? I am sick of this stuff. Because they made idols out of their traditions or my idols out of their selfish preferences, they end up making an idol out of their misery when they don't get their way. Just think of the damage this kind of thinking can do to our marriage, to our kids, to our grandkids. Just think the damage it can do to our church. If any church wants to be, uh, be relevant, it must be focused on, uh, among other things, uh, they be deliberate about reaching the next generation. you got to do that, or you're basically moving into irrelevancy. But that means that some of us that would prefer one thing, it's not about us. We had our turn as somebody else's. Because see, this, this, this mindset can make me very cynical. And a cynic is a person who knows the, the price of everything and the value of nothing. All right. What about abundant thinkers? Well, they feel the pain, the frustration, the angst of, of adversity. They have nerve endings. They're human. But they never use that as an excuse for not doing everything they can to move beyond it in God's power. They fall forward. That's a football term, at least it is to me, because when I played high school football, my, our coach used that term to explain the game. He says, this, this game of football is not that complicated. Here's the object of the game. We hand you the ball, you fall forward. He said, now the key word here is fall. They're going to get you. They're going to hit you hard. They're going to rip your head off. Just make sure you're a few yards further down the field when they do that to you than where we handed you the ball. And eventually, somebody falls over the end zone. We get some numbers up in the sign. That's the game we're playing. You're going to get hit and hurt. I, 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 every once in a while, I get hit, and they knock the wind out of me, and I'm just still laying on the ground. And that coach would yell out. In the middle of a game, even, he did it one time. He says, Kimmel, are you hurt or are you injured? I hated that question. I said, I'm hurt. And what did he say? Come on. Get up. Get up. It's a contact sport. Everybody's hurt. You can't play this game unless you're hurt. Yes, life gets after us. Change hurts. But play hurt. Get into it. And it's easier to do when we're playing for the, for the coach and not for the crowd. When we're playing our lives for Jesus and not for ourselves or what's in it for us. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4. Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face the trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, God comes along and says, if you choose to try and make life as comfortable as possible, you understand you are saying no to, to me being able to do, show you the incredible power and wonder that I wanted to do through you. I have something better for you, but there might be a price to pay. Look, we've all had setbacks, and we, we all have disappointments. But we, the key is, let's not let these define us. Because scarcity thinking is extremely harmful to ourselves as well as others. It steals, it discourages, it handicaps, it wearies. It allows fear to own a controlling interest in our ongoing thinking, and it undermines the gospel. We have something better. And, and, but, but, but you can't do this by accident. I think one thing starts with repentance. We have to look and say, Lord, I've been so guilty of falling on that scarcity side. 
Forgive me for that. And then you got to be with God. I'm so grateful for the scripture reading you guys are doing. Because when you have a heart connection to God through his word, everything changes. He shows up day to day. And prayer. And let the transforming work of Christ, love and mercy and grace, do its complete work. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He wasn't just talking about heaven. He was talking about here. John Maxwell says, the greatest day in your life and mine is when we take total responsibility for our attitudes. That's the day we truly grow up. Let me pray for you. Lord, thanks, 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 thanks for who you are, for what you did, for the fact that you would do that for us when we didn't deserve anything from you. Oh, Lord, forgive us. When we... When we just refuse to see the big picture, even when it's played out right in front of us. Lord, we, want not, we not only want to be people who obey you, but we want to be people who trust you. Help us now. Thank you for this good church and these good people. In Jesus' name, amen.